Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Cinematic Universe. I'm your host, Joe Cunningham. No, no, just kidding. I'm James Hunt and joining me is... Michael Leader. Previous guest, frequent guest. This is probably like your 50th appearance or so. 51st, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and so we're going to do a short episode based around two films which we saw, or which I saw rather, which have aired at the London Film Festival, uh, My Friend Dharma and Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, uh, both of which are sort of comics adjacent. I think the former definitely counts for the podcast. Yeah. Mm. Um, The second, I think we could get away with it, but I'm not sure we'll get to it in short order. So (laughs) considering they're of interest to comics fans, I thought we'd just so they're covered in some way. So Mike, do you want to start with My Friend Dharma? Yeah, my friend Dharma. So, um, yeah, I, I watched this last week. This is one of the ones that we both saw at London Film Festival. Um, it's based on a, a graphic novel um, that kind of appeared in instalments, but was uh, published as a as a big chunky book in 2012. Uh, and it's a sort of uh, graphic novel, autobiographical memoir slash musing by uh, Durf Backdurf um, on his like teenage friendship with Jeffrey Dahmer, or as he was known then as you know, Jeff Dahmer, who then went on to become <laughs> little, the... Little Jeff Dahmer. Whatever happened to that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah this who, is, this... who went on to become the serial killer Jeff Dahmer, we should point out. Yeah, and that's sort of the, the, the tone of the book. It's recounting these kind of snatches of experience of the weird guy in the class that, that he and his friends adopted as their mascot in their final couple of years of high school, um, and sort of obsessively replaying those memories in in his mind to see what they could have foreseen or what they might have missed that could have given them clues to what he would become yeah i mean so as you can guess this movie's kind of a laugh riot although i say that it's actually <laughs> it's actually a lot funnier than you'll expect because yeah. like it's very much made in sort of the teen movie tradition if Spider-Man Homecoming is the like teen movie superhero film this is like american pie meets uh, Silence of the Lambs or something like it's a very strange tone considering the subject matter. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that it's part of the the translation from book to screen. Um, it, it's it's a period movie set in the late seventies or at least in this that crossover between the seventies and the eighties culturally. So it feels very much like part Dazed and Confused, the Richard Linklater film, or part Freaks and Geeks. And it focuses in on, well, the book focuses in on Durf and his friends, who are the sort of like slacker wise guys. Um, but the book, sorry, the film takes a slightly different approach, um, which I don't know, might be to the 
I, I think I, I do we both agree that's slight to the detriment of the film that it focuses in maybe more on Dharma than my friend Dharma. Yeah, in fact, like we were talking, sort of the the book is written entirely from Diff's perspective, mm. as if it uh, you know as it's his memoir. But when making the film, they refocused it from Dharma's perspective to sort of give you an insight into things like his home life and sort of things that Diff wouldn't necessarily have seen, but which are sort of part of the historical record of his crimes. And in doing so, it sort of drastically changes the tone of the work. Like, it it, crea- it goes from being this kind of what if, you know, what if I hadn't egged him on? What if I hadn't been his friend? What if I'd reached out hard and, like, more mm. comprehensively? And the film is more like, you know, here's a good kid who goes bad because of his home life. Yeah, the, the the book ends with these sort of very complicated and conflicted conclusions about not only Durf's uh, kind of culpability in terms of how he and his wise guy friends, kind of smart asses, decided to adopt this guy, this sort of weird kid, and then you know cajole him into public acts of weirdness, which they saw as almost the ultimate Steve Martin kind of pranking of, of like the, the straight masses. <laughs> the normos. The normos. But then he's saying, thinking back, you could see between the cracks a broken home life, a sort of nascent alcoholism, a sort of a discomfort with sexuality, and also a, a broader comment about the latchkey, latchkey kid generation where kids were let loose and not necessarily you know, looked after by the adults and, and uh, people in power around them. And it's a really interesting perspective in the book th- throughout. And once you take out, you know, say, the narration or the, the, that, that perspective on the narrative, it becomes much more tragic in a... Um, in a way that may excuse the crimes or see a, almost a, a direct link between, say, a broken home life or uh, confusions around feelings towards other men. Mm-hmm. It, it draws a direct line in a way that makes the film a bit too simplistic in a way. Yeah, and it's strange, isn't it? Because, like, you know, these things are all matters of public record, like, mm. you know, his trial and various things, like, brought to light exactly how his you know how he was allowed to get this way and sort of the psychological underpinnings of what turned out to be things like cannibalism and necrophilia yeah yeah that the film doesn't really go into it just sort of paints this picture of a kid who was failed by the authorities and you know the adults in his life and to an extent his friends who in other respects, appears to be quite normal, and there are only very minor nods to what he'll become. And it doesn't really try to analyse whether there was any sort of nature versus nature argument. As like as near as I can tell, the film just assumes this kid could have not been a serial killer. Whereas I think I think Dharma had problems that would have led him down that path anyway. Like I don't know, it just seems a lot more complex than Mark Meyer, who made the film, mm. seems to think. Yeah, it's it's probably something we can say for both films we'll talk about today. In, in almost like a flip side, uh, two sides of the same coin. It's it it, it 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 the film does it sort of takes one step back and doesn't provide some of the lurid or voyeuristic or sort of scandalous aspects that if you think of other 
films about serial killers, say Henry Portrait, the serial killer being one of the classics of the genre and so on, films that really go into the grotesqueness or into the unseemliness of of what serial killers are and what they, they mean as part of the culture. It doesn't go there, so it means the tone of the film is very well handled in the mixture of sort of comedy, drama, tragedy, melancholy, but it makes it a much more straightforwardly melancholic film rather than um, anything. Anything <laughs> I don't, I don't want to say exciting. I don't. I didn't want this film to be more exciting or, or horrific. You know, Durf's. What's great about Durf is that his uh, his cartooning style is very much influenced by the sort of San Francisco. Uh, kind of alternative comics it's very grotesque mm-hmm. in its in yeah. its forms and figures so when for example one of his one of uh dharma's uh kind of pranks would be to throw what was sort of a sort of epileptic fit or something in the middle of a shopping mall and the way that Dev draws it it looks kind of grotesque and really terrifying Obs- yeah, it looks upsetting yeah whereas ross lynch who who plays dharma in this he makes he, he plays a very good kind of sad and sorrowful performance of a a boy left adrift in a society that isn't just there for him to support him but you'd never he's he is too pristine really mm-hmm. um and he's i mean, I mean the, the the sort of cheap shot to make is that he's a former disney kid who is on the disney channel been in disney tv movies and has a disney recording career and now this is his equivalent of doing um you know going against that <laughs> going against type yeah but it's 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 not necessarily an ugly performance at all. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the performances, I think his performance is actually really good, even though he's like in real life he's like this super attractive Disney kid. I think he's got talent, and I th- I think it's more that he wasn't directed in the right way, maybe, mm. or shot in the right way. One of the best things you can say about this film is that the central performance is like just really engaging, like it's charismatic, definitely. Mm. Um, it's a very well-made film all round, really. The sense yeah, of sure. like time and place, this sort of like uh, this suburb that isn't necessarily an affluent suburb, but it's a, a leafy one, winding roads and uh, uh, isolated houses in the in the woods and so on. It, it, it's and then as as you know, as I kind of hinted at, this this main maintenance of tone, uh, you know, treading a line between comedy and and drama. And, and, and tragedy and, and quite unpleasant undertones. It's all there. It's just there isn't anything to really knock it out of the park for me. And it, it would be a fantastic... I'd love to dig into the production story for this. <laughs> um, things that maybe were changed along the way. Because you, you know that when you're making a film of this of this level, of this type, that you, this was a, a Tribeca Film Festival premiere, independently made. Mark Myers had made a few films beforehand, but neither of us had heard of them. Um, and this is his first one with, I'd say, recognisable faces and names. Mm-hmm. So, so um, Anne Hesch plays his mum, uh, Dharma's mum, <laughs> which is crazy. I've not seen her in anything for a long time. And <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, I've not seen her since the 90s in a film. <laughs> it's so a strong performance. Really good performance. And then I always forget his name, but uh, Connor from Angel. <laughs> <laughs> Vincent uh, Carthizer. That's not the primary credit for him anymore yeah he's also um, uh he's also in in mad men uh <laughs> as uh, as pete campbell isn't he um, yeah that's the guy uh he's great he plays the the sort of local doctor who becomes a sort of figure of discomforting and confusing feelings for dharma yeah in fact in i can't remember whether this is 
true to the history or not. Uh, when Dharma was in, you know, the, at this age, he did try and kill a jogger, but the jogger, like, who regularly went past his house, who didn't appear. Right. And isn't that the jogger? Isn't he the jogger? I think there are two joggers, aren't there? Ah, uh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely the Doctor is when he meets the Doctor, he's not actually Dharma's jeep in this in the film. It's a bit of a a, a fiddly scene. Yeah, he's actually Durf's GP that they meet him in the kind of in the, right, in the, yeah, in the yeah. parking lot of a, of a convenience store or something. And it's like, oh, who's that guy? He always runs outside my house. Um, it, it's part of there. There are some just fiddly aspects to the screenplay that 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 did kind of didn't quite work for me. Uh, and that's one of them, this threading all the way through that um, we know that he's going to probably kill somebody, but who is he going to kill? Mm-hmm. And they even, um, I think, go so as far to kind of, you know, put you know main characters in danger. And it's like, oh, is he going to is he going to murder them now? <laughs> and just comes across as a bit in, 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 insincere or um, yeah, um, uh, disingenuous. Like, especially since. Like, if you know the historical record, like, basically everyone there is sort of immune because they're not, you know, the the people he killed are known and the circumstances in which they died are known. Well, he, he, because he got away with it for years. And yeah, yeah. You know, he, he didn't freak out and murder everybody in a school or something. He actually sort yeah. of <laughs> out over quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's... It's funny because the what I what I find so fascinating about the book is that the book has this sort of stand by me aspect to it, which is um, a portrait of a quite a small period in the the lives of of a few characters, but then at the end it opens up uh, in perspective to it's now twenty thirty years later. I'm 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 looking back at my life and how much this this peripheral figure in my social group at school has defined me and defined my relationships with my friends as we've grown older. Mm-hmm. And it, it's this... I can really see how picking up that book and then looking at some other film texts like Dazed and Confused or Freaks and Geeks or Stand By Me or whatever, or even it, you know, with this sort of <laughs> structure where it's things that happen as childhood kind of coming back and haunting people in, in, in later life. You could really see how that would track and play out on screen. Um, but along the way, clearly some little changes have been made to to make what could have been a quite a brilliant film into something that is very well made and competent. And I'd, I'd love to see what everyone does next. But I can really see why it's not been a breakout hit in a way. Yeah. Critically. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think I have to say, what's bad about the film, I kind of lay at the feet of Mark Meyer, mm. because like the performances are there, like the cinematography is great, like even the direction is good, but I just I think what it lacks is like a thesis, like it doesn't mm. have it doesn't have a take on Dharma that isn't just like the idea that he might have been okay. And like, well, I saw the Q and A, and he talks about wanting to make the character sympathetic and wow, really? sort of, you know, work out what made him this way. And I think, like I say, I think that's a simplistic way to look at murderers, mm-hmm. certainly. And like, there are th- there are scenes like scenes which I believe were created for the movie. Like, he kidnaps a dog, attempts to kill it, and fails. Yeah. And not even fa- like he can't bring himself to do it. And it's like that scene exists solely to make us go like, oh, maybe he's not too far gone. Whereas in reality, 
he'd been kidnapping and murdering pets for years by that point. Mm. And like the Dharma of this point in real life would not have a, not have had any trouble doing that. Mm. Like it, I feel like he went too far in sort of. My worry about this film is that all the sort of Disney kid fans of Ross Lynch are going to come out of it going like, oh my God, Jeffrey Dahmer was so misunderstood. And so hot. (laughs) And so hot, yeah. Which is not the case. Like, apparently he was quite attractive for the era, but he's not made into enough of a disquieting figure. I mean, part of the problem as well is that that compression of the memoir, which covers a vast span of time into one year. And so... When we start the film, he's like essentially a sort of normal kid who has a slightly weird obsession with dissolving roadkill. And he, over the course of that one year, which is framed is framed as like between the two proms, like the junior and senior prom, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, not being hugely familiar with American high school traditions. Um, it, it frames it as like, oh, well, his family broke apart and, you know, these friends pushed him towards being crazier and weirder. And, you know, his parents abused him and he became an alcoholic and then he started killing things. And it's like that that was going on for probably a decade plus in real life. Yeah. Whereas the film, the film narrows it down and says like, oh, look how quickly it all went wrong. And it really kind of gives it a sort of ABC sense of uh, inevitability to it. Mm-hmm. Which I think is something that Durf in the in the in the original book is really resistant to. He doesn't attempt to explain or excuse the behaviour. It's just there's that incredible tension about trying to just wrestle with your memories and your memories of your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, the book, in fact, reminds me a little bit of Waltz with Bashir, the the documentary of you know uh, israeli armed forces uh, form, former israeli armed forces soldiers trying to figure out the the, the trauma of what they went through and it's the, the the main characters going through you know trying to by talking to other people just figure out what you went through and um but that's not what the film of dharma is it's it's, it's funny it's, it's it's an interesting one it's such an interesting film to talk about and pull apart and and, and then as, as a jumping off point but um I don't think the freaky weirdos who like watching DVDs of, uh, of films about serial killers are going to get much from this film, really. Because <laughs> there is another Dharma film, isn't there? It's, it's Jeremy Renner. Yeah, yeah. That um, was his breakout film, even, wasn't it? That I've, was not the one se- that... I've not seen that one. No, me neither. Um, but it's it's interesting. I, 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 um, quite se- you know, I, I, I love listening to the podcast, but quite separate from the podcast, I, I, I love uh, singling out comic book movies that aren't obvious comic book movies and Dharma's been on my radar for some time mm-hmm. and um, but I can't help but feel a little bit disappointed in a way because I I want graphic novel adaptations into film to be you know to show how incredible some of these stories and points of view and perspectives are Yeah, and I feel that this could have been any festival level indie movie really <laughs> that's almost it's crime isn't it it's like it's yeah. so sort of don't want to say generic but i kind mm. of do mean generic <laughs> yeah because but... like, it's not that it's an inventive even it's just that it you know you feel like you've seen it before and for a film about a serial killer growing up in high school that's a that's an odd thing to say mm-hmm. like in some ways that's its strength like is that it nails the high school tone really well but it just doesn't add anything else i mean i think we've i think we've fairly comprehensively gone over that i you know i don't want to talk too much about these films because 
none of them are theatrically released yet, so I don't want spoilers in there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, spo- uh, it's not really a spoiler to say that he turns into a. <laughs> it's, it's, it just, there's, a it's, yeah. th- there's not really much to spoil about this film, really. Um, it's it, yeah. It, when, when I saw it, in, you know, it, it's it's not um, it's not up there for me. Uh, thankfully, Death of Stalin, which was my other sort of alternative comic book <laughs> movie adaptation, was great. <laughs> so, so that's fine. So, uh, just two quick questions about the movie then. Uh huh. Would you recommend people see it? Um, so, two levels of recommend, I guess. Would you <laughs> go and pay fifteen pounds at your local boutique cinema? That's probably going to be the only one showing this. Probably not. But then also, it's very likely that this might just end up on Amazon Prime or Netflix in a year anyway. And if you're intrigued, you could watch it. It's yeah. quite a short film. Yeah, I don't feel like you'll waste time watching it. Whether you'll get a huge amount out of it if you have to pay a ton of money. like mm. It's not really a good Saturday night out, I'll say that much. I, I feel like it's intriguing as a study of an adaptation. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't read the comic, you probably won't have that to latch onto. And speaking of which, you should definitely read the comic. The comic's great. It's one of those ones that um, it's definitely... It, it, it's the sort of thing that tends to fall through the cracks if you're just a sort of image and mainstream comics reader. Um, because yeah. it's it's put out on... It's it's like what Abrams Comic Arts, whatever the publisher is. And it, it, it'll, be, it'll be in your local comic book store and probably Waterstones or wherever, but... It's not the sort of thing that... Um... <laughs> it's not going to be in the window of Forbidden Planet. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, they, quite interestingly, the first time I became aware of this as a comic was in 2002, when I saw it on the shelves in the Forbidden Planet commentary, actually. And I oh, remember right, okay. fl- I remember flicking through, like, because what happened was he did a lot of short stories, then he collected them all as a single 22-page pamphlet comic. Mm. And then later on, did a after finally getting your commission, did a 100-page... 100 page 200 page book version um which is the sort of current one but at Mm -hmm. the time i didn't buy the pamphlet originally because as you say it was in that like san francisco comics with an x tradition yeah and i just wasn't ready for it like i wasn't prepared to get past the artworks inherent ugliness Mm -hmm. um and i think a lot of people might leave it on the shelf because of that and all i can say is it was a mistake when i did it (laughs) <laughs> so it's a mistake if you do it. Although I did end up buying the pamphlet version uh, off his website when it was uh, nominated for an Eisner. Yeah, I, it was a, yeah, it was quite a success and quite well regarded in its own way. I think what probably harms it is that he's not somebody like an Adrian Tomine or a, or Chris Ware who then went on to put out three or four more books or a book every couple of years. Yeah, in fact, what um, happened was he he had a pretty serious bout with cancer before, and oh wow, having beat that. that went yeah. on to do the the full size book version but that I haven't definitely... read his other he, his, his other book is him a, a autobiography about being a garbage man so it is yeah yeah <laughs> i've not read i've not read that one i mean that is just the, the exact kind of almost um stereotypical example of that sort of book isn't it where you're going to the planet <laughs> and there's a weird book about someone being a garbage man and it's like do i want to pick this up or do i want to pick up the new jeff lemire <laughs> 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 and yeah exactly uh, but um, my friend Arm is great. It's a, such a good book. Yeah, that's a double recommendation on the comic. So, do you want to go straight into the next one? Oh my god, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the follow up is, or the other film which you saw at Toronto Film Festival, I believe? Yes, I saw it nearly a month ago at Toronto, so uh, please excuse if, I, if my memory is a bit hazy. 
Yeah. I saw it two days ago at London Film Festival, which is Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. It's a biographical film about William Moulton Marston, uh, the man who created Wonder Woman, and the women who I guess we can call his two wives, uh, Elizabeth Marston and Olive Byrne. And yeah. so, yeah, essentially it it chronicles their meeting and the forming of their polyamorous relationship and the subsequent creation of Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. and kind of the fallout from all of that i know what i thought of it what did you make of it oh i absolutely loved it i i, I yeah I, this is a film that where the first trailer came out a few months ago this it's sort of gone a little bit under the radar because i really would have thought that a film with rebecca hall and luke evans in about <laughs> the creation of wonder woman should have been <laughs> yeah especially on radar. <laughs> especially this year this well, year I mean, of, of any year they suddenly got around March, April, <laughs> uh, started releasing teaser material for it. And then the first trailer came out and I was thinking, this could be really interesting. But I, what can't be really captured in the synopsis or the trailer is just how sort of classically elegant this movie is. Mm-hmm. And, and also in, in, in its construction, in its tone and style. Um, but then also how intelligently made it is in terms of how dense its themes this I, I, I joked with you about this earlier james but i can say it on record now in a cinematic universe episode this is a joe movie this is a joke movie <laughs> it's yep. there's so much in there the structure and then the characters and their relationships power relationships and uh, themes both personal political creative uh textual subtextuals uh you know etc it's just got so much in there mm-hmm. and also a pair of well I think nearly all the performances, Luke Evans, Rebecca Hall and Bella Heathcote are the main three, but Rebecca Hall in particular, who's one of my favourite actresses. Yeah, like Rebecca, <laughs> Iron Man 3's Rebecca Hall yes. <laughs> absolutely destroys this movie. Like, she is so good in it. Like, I just, I genuinely think that people, anyone who sees this is going to come out loving her if they don't already. And that's not to say the others aren't good, but I think she is, like, she inhabits this unique and sort of surprising character so completely Mm. that almost when she's not on screen you're just like when's Rebecca Hall coming back she also has an amazing kind of mid-Atlantic accent (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah and she's becoming quite a a great accent actor Uh, she was in Christine last year the uh one of the two films that came out last year about Christine Chubbuck, the, the local news anchor who shot herself live on television. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a, just a really dark, uh, but uh, dark and upsetting, but quite wonderful portrait of a, of a woman kind of unraveling. Um, and yeah, she's brilliant in that. And this is just keeping that, keeping that winning streak going. Mm-hmm. I really hope she gets some attention. Um, yeah. But we should really set up kind of what it's about because there's so much in this yes, film. Yes, yeah. Really. <laughs> and I, I know that you want to talk about how its historical accuracy and I, I, in a way I don't particularly care as much about historical accuracy because this film works for me on the level of it being almost an essayistic investigation into what it is to create and what it is to love and what it is to have ideals and to live by them and um, in a way that it reminds me almost more of something like Inside Lewin Davis or... Um, I'm Not There, the Bob Dylan movie, mm-hmm. where it says more about historical figures <laughs> and periods and times um, than something that is by the letter historical. Yeah, so what you've done there has made me sound like a nitpicker. No, no, it's, 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 actually, <laughs> it, it, it's really important because because the points of departure and the, uh, still made a good movie. 
Mm-hmm. So, so it's important to still talk about that. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't think any ways it diverged from historical record make it bad necessarily, which is something that, you know, I think with Dharma as well, like, if you're making a film, you can't be 100% accurate all the time. And the act of writing a screenplay and deciding what to keep in and what to leave out is in itself a form of sort of untruth. So, you know, you don't go into these things looking for 100% honest accuracy so I, on that level it doesn't it doesn't bother me because as you say the film is so good on another there are things that i'm surprised they changed right like the i mean for a start the the film opens with um them sort of collecting comic books mm. and as soon as i saw that scene happening i was really excited because i was like oh they're doing the rhythm <laughs> stuff yeah because yeah. like that's such a big moment for comics and i don't know how in the public consciousness it is and so I was really sort of impressed that they they started with that. Yeah. We need the Cavalier and Clay movie to come out. And then, <laughs> yeah. Then we'll know. <laughs> Although it's kind of, this is something that I think is a problem with the historical accuracy is that there are some things in there which are so on the nose that it almost feels like they've been made up. Like how, how Olive walks around with like these giant sort of metal bracelets on. Right. And if this was, like, if you weren't familiar with the history, you'd be going, come off it. Like, (laughs) have some subtlety. And yet, that's what actually happened. Like, it's on record that he... He based the bracelets on a pair of olives. Right. So, (laughs) Well, that's the thing that the the, the film does really well. It has a whole sequence about... um, the two Marstons, uh, both William and, and, and Elizabeth, uh, and their research um, as, as kind of you know, psychologists and, and at the forefront of of certain radical theories about domination and interpersonal relationships. They were also um, deep into the research that developed the first lie detector. Um, so it sets up this scene where they are academics first and foremost, but quite edgy academics uh, invested in the suffrage movement or women's rights. I would say they're they're radical academics. Radical academics. Um, And then Bella Heathcote, Olive Byrne, comes into their lives and it sets up the the kind of polyamorous aspect of their relationship there. Meanwhile, there's this, and when I say classically constructed, this is what I mean, there's this fantastic device all the way through where it flashes back and forth with what I imagine is part of the it's standing in for the the, the Wortham kind of era mm-hmm. where it's Connie Britton uh, doing quite close reading of Wonder Woman uh, attacking Marston saying you're peddling filth and perverting the minds of children and then <laughs> flashing back and forth building this sort of unique character relationship which just by a the fact that it's a, a polyamorous kind of bisexual relationship is it you know, is is almost a first on screen in a way for a movie of this kind. Um, but then, as you say, with the bracelets, it then starts dropping in references that was pulled together to create Wonder Woman, including um, you know a fascination with uh, with bondage, which becomes parts of the ropes and so on. Mm-hmm. But then it is also effortlessly then woven in with uh, Marston's uh, primary research into dominance and submission and how it's only through submission to a a willing submission and conformity to a higher authority. (laughs) To a loving authority. To a loving authority that that we can be happy. 
and it how he then as part of creating Wonder Woman and creating these stories um what would the, how how Twitter put it <laughs> uh foisted his agenda on the readers <laughs> no no they keep they used to keep com- uh, politics out of comics you understand but that's what's amazing and that's what's something that really resp- that i responded hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So I've said before that my favorite part of the first Avenger is where... um Captain America is shown as being pretty much just a comic book character in support of the war effort to sell war bonds. And that's one of the only moments where the Marvel Universe has actually kind of looked upon itself and what the comics medium is. (laughs) And this film is exactly that, breaking over from what comics could be, what comics was, what comics is as 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 an art form. And Marston and his... and and the women that, that inspired him and helped him really believed in comics as a, as a medium for change, for effective change, for inspiration, for... Yeah, for, for delivery of ideas. For delivery of ideas. And not just... Ide- if it, it really... Because the Golden Age is kind of laughed at a lot now um, for being, you know, primary colours and silly concepts and quite um, uh, kind of bald-faced ideologies... Um, but it's so interesting that this film manages to then have a deep reading into the inner workings of a comic. I know that's a perspective, and I don't know if it really holds <laughs> up as a... I've never really read Wonder Woman too deeply, so I can't tell whether it's true to the to the comic or true to the character. But in a world where really Stan Lee's take, a, take on what comics characters should be is, 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 is held up as gospel. It's so interesting to have that played out in a film. Yeah, I mean... The thing that sort of interests me about, like the golden, as you say, the golden age of comics is kind of laughed at as simplistic and sort of half formed. But actually, the people writing those comics sort of knew what they were doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, it's not an accident that they're like shouting slogans at one another and stuff. Like, you know, it's partially a joke, but also it's intended to sort of speak to simpler minds like it you know there's complexity in the ideas but they're being deliberately distilled and it's kind of it's easy to look at those comics and say well they're you know they're simple and lack adult complexity and it's like well yeah but that's how they were designed and that's what's kind of so pointed in this film is that it's being these comics are being made to make young boys respect women (laughs) and it's like 
this is Angela Robinson who's written and directed this who is kind of primarily known now as um, uh, you know, she, she was a director and writer on The L Word she was involved in uh, you know, True Blood and, 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 and so on she's a TV person she's not a comics nerd it's 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 not you know when nerds write books you know we get ready player one <laughs> uh, meanwhile we have this which is just such a a work that really gets what what art can be and lo- looks at comics and sees potential and explores that and it's like it's, it's weird it's weirdly sort of political in and relevant still like that's what i find surprising is that mm-hmm. it's, it's doing stories set Broadly, almost 100 years ago, like it, the film, well, the first half of the film, at least, is set in the 1920s. Yeah. And it's that sort of interwar era, isn't it? Yeah. And like it, it remains sort of politically vital. Exactly. And that's because of, that's just a testament to how radical um, the, 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 the they were then and some of the concepts are still radical now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, as we've said about, um, you know, keeping politics out of comics you know that's something that is a battleground on twitter every day or keeping female characters out of comics you know mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> it's this the, you know it's this film isn't afraid of the the the, the work that the great people that its lives it's telling made there are so many biopics and this is you know i, I should probably say this the way this film is made the look of it the tone of it is really not a million miles away from the sort of Oscar Beatty biopic. It's... <laughs> I tell you what I was reminded of, and that was a dangerous method. Well, oh really? It's okay. I can see what you mean there, where, with the, the sort of BDSM elements, I guess. But it's, um, but really, you could, if you kind of wandered in halfway through a scene and then wandered out, you could mistake this for something like the Imitation Game or mm-hmm. the Theory of Everything or Suffragette from a couple of years ago or one film I saw in Toronto I think the day before this was The Current War which is a film I mean it's a terrible title that's a pun it's The Current <laughs> War uh, meaning the Edison versus Tesla versus the other people <laughs> who were trying to light up the west of the northeast seaboard in um, the kind of late 19th century um, and it's a really cack-handed film. That <laughs> oh, that's some, a shame. It's got some amazing. I mean, it's it, it's a, it's a it's a time in history that is fascinating. It's characters that are fascinating, and it's a, it's it's almost the age of miracles because every day you are having time collapsed in terms of night suddenly being open to people. Mm-hmm. You're having telephones, so distance was being collapsed, and train travel, and flights, and everything, and it just doesn't know how to explore those creations. Whereas what this film does, what Professor Marston does, is it manages to explore all that. And it means that nerds like us can respond to the comic book element of it, mm-hmm. whilst also a more mainstream audience or an audience with a different perspective will watch this and see a really radical film about sexuality and desire and romance in a polyamorous setting, which it does both equally well <laughs> and manages to have each side of that coin feed off each other. It's you know, It's... it's I'm stunned yeah. by it. And yeah. uh, it's worth pointing out as well, I again, because Film Festival, there was a Q&A after the screening I saw, and I think every polyamorous couple in London, couple, every polyamor- <laughs> polyamorous uh, grouping in London must have been at that screening, <laughs> judging yeah. by the Q&A. Like, and they were all really pleased with the depiction of their lifestyle and sort of how it gets it. So mm-hmm. even in that sense, it's it's a film that is sensitive rather than titillating. 
Like if you know. if you try and imagine how Fifty Shades of Grey approaches BDSM, it is the polar opposite of that. It manages to it manages to really present it as romantic and yeah. an aspect of their relationship and, <laughs> and it, consensual from the you know top to I shouldn't say top to bottom <laughs> <laughs> consensual at every level. But then also, uh, kind of what I meant with um, what I said when we were talking about Dharma is that it's not a titillating or lurid film. It's mm-hmm. um, it's quite adult in that sense that it doesn't feel the need to kind of laugh or you know or or, 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 or push um, any sort of taboo or push a button with the representation here. It just presents it as yeah, matter of fact. Ru- matter of fact and a key component of their relationship and it's amazing there's it's not a spoiler because it's part of their their relationship history but it just says that they come together and say let's the marstons can live as man man and wife um olive can be living with them and then it flashes forward and then suddenly they've got like eight kids together (laughs) (laughs) and they've managed to make it work Mm -hmm. it doesn't really doesn't really foist too much drama or or melodrama or incident on this relationship yeah um that, that's not required and i really hope that this film doesn't get lost because it's because it's not kind of edgy enough or um you know it happens every year that there's the sort of middle brow i think this is it's technically middle brow i know it's that's mainly used as a, as a disparaging <laughs> as term but it's a it's a it's a film that provides you with the sort of the romance and the the, the sweep of a, of a classical biopic or biographical drama but also has some real ambition and ideas behind it so it's kind of about doing both so well but it's there's a tendency for those films to suddenly disappear when oscar season comes around and yeah. the um the debate and the discourse forms around certain films and you see it happening already with the shape of water which is brilliant the guillermo del toro film um, and I don't really know what else. Well, well, I guess we'll see once January comes around. But I mean, I, really I hope this <laughs> stays. I would love for this to get Oscars, but I don't think it will. Like as brilliant as it is, I just I think it's too small time. I really hope original screenplay um, would be, you know, in, in its future. That, yeah. that would be brilliant. And yeah, yeah I think that, I think as good as the performances are, it's missing like. You know, it's not an actor's performance. Like the performances are good, but all in service of the story. It's not like uh, what's the Leonardo DiCaprio bear film? <laughs> <laughs> the Revenant. It's not got. It's not a Revenant. Yeah. Well, the Revenant. The, the thing with the Revenant performance by Leo is that the entire performance was an Oscar montage performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and this this isn't that. No, it's sort of this. If the film, in a way, reminds me of Loving from last year, yeah. which was um, Jeff Nich- Jeff Nichols and um, a very just beautifully handled film um, with a couple of performances at the heart of it. Ruth Negger, in particular, was just beautiful in that film, and like couldn't be further away from Tulip in in Preacher. <laughs> um, but it was just a little bit too small, a little bit too quiet. Didn't have the money behind it, or the sort of the powerhouse yeah. produ- production companies behind it to to make a an oscar play yeah i mean i sort of have to believe though in in the year of wonder woman yeah the audience for this film is there and i have to believe they're gonna find it is it out really soon in the states it's out i believe it's this weekend is it this weekend even october 13th yeah (laughs) quick (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
So I, I mean, it's out uh, next month in the UK. So it, you know, it's pretty quickly, pretty quick turnaround on it. Yeah, it only had its world premiere in, uh, at Toronto in September, so that's really quick turnaround. Yeah. But I wonder whether. Well, from my point of view, I don't know how, how you feel about this, James, but this is the second film about Wonder Woman released in a year that was written and directed by a woman, and this is this is by far my favourite of the two. Um, I had... Oh, yeah, I, for I, sure. I wasn't swept away by Wonder Woman in the way that some people were, and I, I really appreciate the way that people were. It's not... Some, I'm not I, I, I would never take that away from people, the rush that that film gave. But um, for me, that this film was just so accomplished on every level. I mean, I'm trying to think before I say this, like, it might be my favourite of the year. Oh, wow, really? Well, I mean, you know, I've been looking forward to it for so long and it delivered on everything that I wanted it to. And, like, this whole period of comics history is something I'm massively interested in anyway. So, Mm -hmm. like, in addition to being brilliantly crafted and intelligent and sort of so clear about what it thought and what it wanted to say and all of that stuff, it also happens to be, like something i'm super interested in and i just i can't wait to see it again yeah me too yeah um yeah just simply because i love those sorts of films that really dig into characters and lives and concepts and you know this will go now go down alongside inside lewin davis and and i'm not there and films that even something like i mean this is very different of course but something like 24-hour party people which <laughs> take, takes lives and mm-hmm. stories and, and and cultural texts that you know but then tries to pull them apart and make them speak you know speak for them in in, 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 in ways beyond the text yeah we'll, we'll yeah. see <laughs> and so i just want to talk quickly we mentioned about how it's kind of talking about the kind of simplistic nature of comics and how they can be used to deliver ideas and stuff and in a way that is this film as well isn't it like we talked after we after i saw it about how even though at times it has to be necessarily simple because it's got sort of hour and a half and change to tell what is essentially a story spanning sort of 40 50 years of history Mm. with vast political and social upheaval happening around it but at the same time it, it reminds you that simplistic narratives are actually capable of and in many ways a better way of delivering complex ideas than comics than exactly than complex ones well exactly yeah. and it's it's kind of simplistic narrative frameworks really mm-hmm. um i don't know if i've said this I, I might have said this when i've been on the podcast before but what i love about comics is that a comic story could be you know five panels long you know, 10 pages long 23 pages long or a thousand pages long and mm-hmm. it could be you know, it just takes the right creator to have the right idea and that's why i've been in so many conversations with people recently about how cinema's dead because television happens (laughs) but this this is this is why i still like i love film because it's the restrictions and they only have an hour and 45 Mm -hmm. you could probably have made the version of this that was a 10-part netflix series and had three episodes on them burning comic books and being called in front of committees and so on but that's not. I, I'd find that boring in a way. I, I love the restrictions, and I love how it 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 um, inspires kind of concision and economic you know, econo- economy of storytelling. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so again, would you recommend people see this film? Oh, very. Yeah, very strongly. <laughs> Especially if you you're even vaguely interested in this. 
Yeah, right. and I assume if you're listening to this podcast, and essentially if you've got this far into the podcast, <laughs> you should be pre-ordering your ticket as soon as possible. I agree. <laughs> it, like, it just is incredible. It really is. Yeah, it makes yeah. me want to go and read some Wonder Woman comics. <laughs> I had that exact feeling. I was like, oh, I should go and read some Wonder Woman comics from the 1940s, which is something that even I previously would have put on the back burner. Well, yeah, because you only tend to see those any. I mean, comics in general from the golden age, kind of in those compilations of the weirdest comics of all time, mm-hmm. or the characters that didn't make it, or and all that. And it, it's very rare to yeah to be to be inspired to go and watch. Yeah, these I think books. I think especially with Wonder Woman, like Marston was well ahead of his time. So mm. I think in that sense, it's. One like 1940s Wonder Woman will probably benefit from a closer reading more than say 1940s Superman or Batman did. Clearly, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Although you know, I, I made the crack about we're waiting for the Cavalier and Clay uh, film, which mm-hmm. you know the, the the Michael Chabon book, but that's actually quite a, a similar text, but taking on Superman and and the other Golden Age heroes. It, mm-hmm. it, it, but it's completely fictionalized, but with characters at, at the periphery that are recognizable. Um, but it really just busts open aspects of the superhero, Superman myth and the and the you know, the stories of, the, of, of its creators, um, and explores the whole way that Jewish backgrounds and you know, working class New York Manhattan upbringings yeah. can, can <laughs> the Im- the immigrant story, the immigrant story exactly. again comics not political, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not actually adapted from a book, but. Um... There is a book which I've just bought and I'm, what, five chapters into and it's frankly stunning, Mm. uh, which is called The Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore. I'm fairly sure, based on the amount of reference uh, reference notes in it, that it was at some point an academic text, but it's very well written. It's got lots of uh, illustrations of 1940s Wonder Woman comics uh, and it's even got a nice glossy photo section in the middle. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so that's, you know, unlike nearly all of those other books, like the Glenn Weldon books and the Sean Howe Marvel book, which are, you don't get any pictures mm-hmm. in those. Yep. So I'm... Is, is it pictures of Wonder Woman or pictures of Marston, etc.? It does have, it has pictures of Wonder Woman in the glossy bit, but the other illustrations are black and white. There are a lot of black and white photos of Marston in his lab and what Marston it... and his wives, Marston yeah. and his children. Like, it's all in here. Great. okay. It's not a spoiler to say that they don't look like Luke Evans and Rebecca Hall. Right? <laughs> no, they I mean, are they are very much the homely nineteen forties people they <laughs> are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You imagine your grandparents to have been. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's heavy. I don't want to think of that. <laughs> uh yeah, so I would recommend getting hold of that book. It's like five quid on Kindle and a tenor in physical copy. Mm. Yeah. And again, comes with the stamp of recommendation because I've read the start of it now having bought it the day after seeing the film and i'm loving it i'm looking forward to so if it comes out in the states on the 13th i'm looking forward to at five past midnight on october 14th for the uh 10 things professor marston gets wrong about wonder woman uh, <laughs> think pieces to come out <laughs> uh, i mean there is just before we sign off there is one very surprising aspect that i'm that i like obviously it glosses over a lot of stuff like the fact that Marston works as a writer before creating the character of Wonder Woman Mm. like I've I've already learned from the screenplay that he 
from the screenplay. I've already learned from the book that he wrote um, what were then called photo plays for early silent movies as a way of supporting himself through college. That's interesting. Yeah, in fact, he to flashback to our earlier chat about the the current war, he wrote stuff for Edison's company. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, So this is so that's a shame that we can't have the Edison cinematic universe. (laughs) Well, quite. But yeah, the thing that. The thing that surprises me is, is, is that they they left out uh, Elizabeth suggesting that the superhero uh, Marston creates should be female, right? Which to me, like, it's a fairly major aspect of her input. Like, he was creating a superhero who wasn't necessarily female, and she said something worse to the effect of, "You damn well better make her a woman." Yeah, exactly. And you know, that's a fi- in given that. Olive was the model for the character. It strikes me that's the missing piece of the puzzle in terms of bringing all three of them together to create Wonder Woman. Yeah, I'm sure this is it's it's such a a sort of considered film. I'm sure that it was for a reason, for some sort of flow or something. But it's surprising. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, that's why the you know that's why the reference text exists. Yeah, the I'd movie is good, to... the book is good, and they are necessarily different. Exactly. I'd love to interview Angela Robinson about this. I'd love to see just, you know, how it yeah. goes into a film like this. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And how you had a writer-director who seems more invested in a character than sometimes the actual writers and directors of that character's big-budget movies. <laughs> Someone did ask at the Q&A, would you do your own Wonder Woman movie and it's like well obviously yes but also the the day you get a black queer female director doing your big budget Hollywood sequel is a long way off yeah we need to do them do all those adjectives individually first yeah quite <laughs> or or at all <laughs> yeah uh, she was very complimentary about Patty Jenkins as a Wonder Woman though I should point it out there were there were no sour grapes Interesting. I wonder if did, did they ever work on similar things together, like TV credits? I Apparently, what, an interesting thing she said was while she was developing this film, she said something like, "I spoke to the woman who did an early draft of what became the Wonder Woman movie." Oh, do you so, remember who that could have been? I don't know off the top of my head, but you know, I I'm assuming it wasn't the Joss Whedon version because I don't think any of that went into the finished film. So yeah, I think we said everything we need to about both of those movies. Uh, one great, one not so great, but neither necessarily bad. Like, I find it interesting when the worst thing you can say about a film is, I don't really agree with all it was doing. Because mm. like, sometimes you watch a film and it's just a trash fire. And neither of these are trash fires. They're both well considered. But in one case, I just don't really, I don't agree with what it was saying. I mean, to to, to, to be really simplistic, it's a three three star film and a potential five-star film really yeah <laughs> so, but professor marston i really i really hope people go and see me too if you di- if you only see one of these films it should definitely be professor marston and in fact if you only see one film this year it should probably be professor marston or thor ragnarok which i'm going to see next ah, week that's coming up i can't wait <laughs> not to rub the fact that we're film critics in your face or anything i mean that's one of those films where you know they were doing the premiere stuff last night on Twitter, and like, I'd forgotten <laughs> Jeff Goldblum was in it. Or, it was just like because you know you think of Thor Ragnarok, you think of Thor, and you know the main characters. And it's like, oh no, but then also Kate Blanchett, and it's yeah. There are so many things in that to look forward to. 
Yep. So me and Mike are going to be seeing Thor Ragnarok next week, and uh, there'll be a Cinematic Universe episode about it in a couple of weeks, I imagine. You can find out what we thought about it then. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) Me neither. If anything's going to knock Professor Marston off the top, it's It's a shame that Shape of Water is coming out next year, because I'd probably say that that might knock it off. I haven't seen it yet. Mm, It's really good. That's the... I mean, it's. I, I'd say that's almost comics adjacent because it's Game of Del Toro doing a sort of quiet Hellboy-inspired film because <laughs> it because it, it it's definitely inspired by Abe Sapien. Yeah, interesting. Uh, the main character. Well, the main <laughs> I mean, character. that possibly preempts my last question, which was just going to be, what else at the London Film Festival did you think was worth seeing? Uh, I'd, I'd probably say that is the big one. That's the movie that, when it comes out in February or January, is going to be definitely worth seeing. It's Guillermo del Toro kind of doing this sweeping fantasy romance that also has a really weird kind of in 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 in, in like a creepy fet like kind of fetishy kind of way weird mm-hmm. vibe because it's Sally Hawkins and a fish man, <laughs> <laughs> a, a mute fish man in a, in an Area Fifty One style facility developing a a loving romance. Um, wow, we've all we've fantastic. all been there. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I remember when I was there, but uh, it's it's uh, it's just brilliant, and it's actually take it's developing the momentum from Venice and Toronto of almost being an Oscar contender, wow. which will be the you know the strangest the, you know, the strangest Oscar nominee for a <laughs> long time. That's the film I saw in Toronto that I thought was really good, um, and uh, yeah, it probably would be out of the London Film Festival selection one of my favorites. But then there's also three three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Which is the um, the new film from Martin McDonough, who did In Bruges, and it's Frances McDormand as one of her first leading roles since Fargo, uh, just completely tearing things up. She's she's such a good actress and is so patient and in her own world that she doesn't chase the spotlight. And it's amazing when she <laughs> is in the spotlight. It's a great film. Yeah, I, I mean, In, in Bruges is one of probably one of my all time top top 10 definitely films like i love it like nothing else Um, so uh, imagine that but it's a sort of very dark humored sad comedy drama (laughs) (laughs) with a great cast it's woody harrelson and and francis mcdormand and um sam rockwell and uh you know all sorts of people yeah i mean sounds good (laughs) Yeah, that's going to be one of the other big Oscar players, I imagine. At least Francis McDormand would be up there. Sure. What have you seen, James? I have seen. Uh, I saw Have a Nice Day, which was a Chinese animation that turned out not to be great. It's kind of done in a sort of pulpy, pulp fictiony style. Uh, it's okay. It looked better than it. The stills looked better than the animation, which was a shame. Uh, mm. And I also saw Tiger Girl, which is fully improvised, impressively. Uh, a fully improvised movie about oh. uh, sort of anarcho German anarcho punks living in uh, Berlin, kind of kicking against authority. It's about like essentially one girl learning to be a security guard meets the antithesis of that. It's kind of a Clockwork Orange slash Kill Your Boyfriend okay. type movie. Like I really enjoyed it. it you know, it's never going to be Oscar material. At best, it's going to turn up on Netflix as one of those weird films that gets three stars and you skip over. But it's a three-star film that I had a five-star reaction to. 
because it's hmm. it's just all the stuff I find fun and interesting. It's like it's themed around these sort of two female leads who are kind of teens without much on in their lives or young adults, I should say, because they're probably in their twenties. Um, and it's about like violence uh, as an escape from boredom, which hmm. is one of the things I loved about Kill Your Boyfriend. In fact, I'm so sure it was influenced by Kill Your Boyfriend. Because, oh, which is the Grant Morrison comic that I talk about all the time. So if you're listening to the podcast, I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, it was a recommendation way back when, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely been a recommendation. Because in Kill Your Boyfriend, the first time the lead girl meets the boy is when he kicks a car window in. And the first time it happens that the lead girl meets the other sort of more anarchic girl in this film, she kicks the wing mirror off a car. It's so similar to Kill Your Boyfriend that kind of think it must be an influence or maybe they're both homaging the same thing i don't know but that that's the kind of vibe i got i'll look for that it's got ella rumpf in it who was really good in raw last year she was the older sister yeah um the older sister in raw and uh, yeah she looks amazing in all of the stills for this Mm -hmm. she looks really kind of kick-ass yeah so yeah, it's a fun film. Sounds good. Yeah. Oh, and I also saw Jailbreak, which is, which is a Cambodian martial arts movie. Uh, it's the first action film to come out of Cambodia since the war. Uh, right. To make it, they were on such a shoestring budget that they had to... They couldn't afford to fly in stuntmen from Thailand. They had to get the one guy to train 75 stuntmen for the film. Wow. And <laughs> the tone of it is like an action comedy that reminds me of... Uh, Jackie Chan in his prime and it's <laughs> great martial arts like very tight raid style story and I, I think it's being distributed by the same people who did the raid in the okay. west so I'm sure that will crop up in limited form somewhere. I think there's um, there's one film that you've just reminded me of um, obliquely that, that I would recommend which is called Lucky which I saw the night before last mm. um, and it has Harry Dean Stanton in it who people might remember as you know, for various things he was in hundreds of films until <laughs> he died very recently but uh, he was in avengers as the security guard with mark ruffalo um who lent him his scooter which was a, a, a cut scene apparently right it's a deleted scene yeah um but it's a film that was written and produced by harry dean stanton's stanton's long-term assistant and it was a project that was made with him in mind he'd become he'd been semi-retired for years i think not long after the Avengers and a few other performances, he'd kind of retired and he was in his 90s at that stage. Mm-hmm. And is this sort of character sketch, character portrait of a 90-year-old man living in a small town and going about his daily routine and business, but going through a bit of an existential crisis along the way. And it's just this very bittersweet, wonderful, kind of soulful film and a really kind of beautiful send-off for a, an actor that, I mean, once when you broaden out from just comic book movies he's in so many movies that film fans and geeks would have seen from alien to repo man to <laughs> to you know escape from new york all the way to kind of more artistic and art films like paris texas um he's an, you know, an iconic legendary actor and <laughs> he said he certainly had a career i mean one of the best i mean it's ama- it's, it's, it's just mind-boggling to think how old 91 is. <laughs> <laughs> he has a picture of him when he's young in army uniform because he was in his 20s during the war. And it's kind of like it's kind of like Stan Lee because you kind of think, oh, he was came around in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> yes, yeah. when really he was a, when he was already like <laughs> in his 40s. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'd recommend Lucky as well if if that might only get a small release. Cool. Okay, I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm not going to do the usual outro spiel because I don't have it in front of me, and I stop listening by the time Joe starts saying all that stuff. To be honest. Do you not uh, have a pitch for me? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately not. Uh, I will say, if you'd like to back us on Patreon, which is how we're able to record extra episodes like this, uh, you can get involved at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. Uh, Mike, thanks for coming on and being my sounding board slash saying all the interesting stuff while I went, mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure, James. Thanks. <laughs> You're always welcome. And yeah, thanks to everyone else for listening. There'll be a another normal episode along soon i assume <laughs> the others normally take care of it i'm just here for the i'm just here for the free tickets <laughs> uh so yeah bye everyone bye Dun 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 dun. <laughs>